0: Today on the University Podcast, you are about to listen to part two of three in our lecture series entitled Racist, Sexist, Anti-Gay. And in these lectures, Keith, Darrell, and I will be analyzing current cultural trends related to social justice. We each give 15 to 20 minute presentations, followed by a time of question and answer. If you are in the Moscow, Idaho area and want to join us, we meet on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. at the MZ building. You can find more information about this on our CRF Facebook page. Enjoy the show. Now this is Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 to 24. These are the words of God. Father, you say that the world is walking in futility. Their understanding is darkened. The world is not thinking correctly. And because they walk in the blindness of sin, they are alienated from life itself for you, our life itself. And so we ask for your help tonight as we analyze uh, just some of the world's lies. We ask that you would dispel them, expose them with the truth, and that the truth would set us free. Grant us the true liberation, the true freedom that only comes from your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. 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 All right, part two of racist, sexist, anti-gay. Let's go. Um, I want to start by briefly summarizing what we covered last week. You were bombarded with a lot, Um, but we asked the question, what is the common denominator uh, beneath racial wokeness, gender wokeness, and sexual or LGBTQ plus wokeness? I asked, why is it that books like White Fragility, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and Untamed are all on Amazon's best-selling book list right now? And I argued that the common denominator beneath each of these is a religious commitment to humanism. Humanism is the common denominator. And then we asked, well, what exactly is humanism? And using uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who's a philosopher, activist, um, and scripture, we defined humanism as that which makes man ultimate instead of God. That's what human, the essence of humanism is. Humanism is essentially, we said, self-worship. Humans or humankind are the idol that we all sacrifice and bow down to. There's no creator, man makes himself, there are no moral absolutes, Man invents morality as he goes. There is no objective standard of law or justice. It is all subjective to whatever man wants to legislate or adjudicate. So in humanism, man is his own creator, definer, lawgiver, and judge. Man is his own God. And tonight, I wanna show you how this theology of humanism, theology, doctrine of God, where they say man is actually God, forces them into a deficient anthropology, or doctrine of man. And because of this deficient anthropology, they fail to deliver on the promises they offer. So humanism offers over and over again, they say, we're gonna offer you freedom, liberation. We're gonna see it actually enslaves enslaves them. Humanistic social justice, what's happening in a lot of these, uh, whether it's Black Lives Matter, uh, protests or riots, uh, whether it's Antifa, whatever it is, uh, humanistic social justice claims to liberate blacks, liberate women, liberate gays, liberate all of mankind. But as with all false gospels, it fails to deliver. So tonight I want to get a sample of what these people, we might call them the woke, say about mankind. And since mankind is too cisgendered, uh, they prefer the label "humankind because hu man is so much better. Wow. So, um, right uh, So I mentioned uh, a couple books last week, uh, and I bought them yeah. <laughs> uh, And I was like, I don't know how I feel about like giving money to these people, but you know this is, this is for the cause. So, so I bought them. <laughs> I bought these two books and I've been reading them. Uh, This is Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Guess if a man or a woman wrote this. A man. Okay, a woman wrote this. It's very, it's very nice and and colorful. And then uh, this is How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X Kendi. So I've read more of this book than this one. This one is. Like, uh, this lady had ADD or something, and the chapters, this is one of those books where the chapters are like a page and a half long, so you feel like, well, I'm making so much progress, but really you're know, like, I'm not, I'm not actually. Uh, so, so I, I wanna look, uh, look at these books. We don't want a straw man uh, our opponent, right? This is one of the rules of discourse, especially as Christians. So the world, they can lie about you. They're, they're going to straw man Christians. They're going to call you racist, sexist, anti-gay. But we don't get to do the same thing for them. We need to actually try to fairly represent uh, what their their position is. And So that's why I'm doing this work for you. So to also to save you the time of having to read this garbage. Uh, So, so Glennon Doyle, she's the woman, she's the 40-year-old white lady who's divorced her husband. Now, granted, I found out her husband was cheating on her, so she could have divorced him and then just remained uh, single, but she decided to marry another woman, uh, this famous uh, soccer star, I forget uh, forget what her name is, Uh, something Wombach, Abby Wombach or something like that. Uh, So, that's Glennon Doyle, and then how to be a racist, Ibram X. Kendi, black guy, professor, director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, he lives in Washington, D.C. Okay, so uh, what is Glennon Doyle and Ibram Kendi's anthropology? So this is the kind of investigative hunt we're gonna go on, so I I gave you a label, humanism, I defined it, and now I want to to see, okay, is this true? Um, Is that what what shows up in here? Uh, So let's, let's start with Glennon Doyle. Uh, her, her book starts with a prologue entitled Cheetah, cheetah uh, referring to the animal. And she recalls this story about going to the zoo with her daughter and seeing this cheetah who is tamed and taught to be like a Labrador, like a, like a dog. And in, instead of living like a wild cheetah, she's uh, trapped in this zoo, she says, um, and she chases around these, um, these like stuffed animal bunny that is attached to the hitch of a jeep. And this is how they like entertain people. So uh, this this cheetah chases the stuffed animal, and then when she gets it, uh, they give her a steak. And uh, Glennon Doyle's looking at this and like, this is just so wrong, right? Because this is a this is a, a cheetah that we're talking about. She says, uh, "quote uh, This cheetah was born to be wild, born to run and hunt and kill in wide open savannas, not perform for strangers and be caged in a zoo." And then she says, "so also." She, Glennon, was born to be wild, right? So she's starting with the story about the cheetah, and you're gonna find out she's the cheetah. <laughs> uh, so, so, so for Glennon, she, she wants to follow that untamedness, that wildness, and that's how she becomes her true self. Right? So for Glennon Doyle, that's liberation. Um, I'll read you kind of an extended quote here, this is on on page 5 in all your your books you have. (laughs) She says says this, I wanted to be a good girl, so I tried to control myself. I chose a personality, a body, a faith, and a sexuality so tiny I had to hold my breath to fit myself inside. That's a good good writing right there. (laughs) Then I promptly became very sick. When I became a good girl, I also became bulimic. None of us can hold our breath all the time, right? This is good, this is good. (laughs) Bolivia was where I exhaled. It was where I refused to comply, indulged my hunger and expressed my fury. I became animalistic during my daily binges. Then I draped myself over the toilet and purged because a good girl must stay very small to fit inside her cages. She must leave no outward evidence of her hunger. Good girls aren't hungry, furious, or wild. All of the things that make a woman human are a good girl's dirty secret. Back then, I suspected that my bulimia meant that I was crazy. In high school, I did a stint in a mental hospital, and my suspicion was confirmed. But I understand myself differently now. I was just a caged girl made for wide open skies. I wasn't crazy. I was a bleep cheetah, Goddamn cheetah. She says, so this is I'm coming to this and say, okay, Glennon, tell me about your your liberation. And what is your anthropology? And she is a cheetah, a goddamn cheetah, she says in her own words. And then that little story is followed uh, by another story of her seeing this woman, Abby, wanting her, desiring her and then pursuing that desire. So she later uh, marries her. So what is Glennon Doyle's anthropology? It's that humankind is meant to follow his or her own desires. And we become fully human, fully alive, only when we love ourselves enough to pursue those desires, to satisfy our animal appetites. And it's funny, and by funny I mean sad, how she sets up her, her whole anthropology in counter-distinction to Christianity. And this was a common theme in both of these books. And I, and I believe the second chapter of both of these books, they're going to talk about how they were formerly Christians or had some kind of Christian up, upbringing. And so, uh, here's the story she gives... Um, She uh, tells the story about being in a Catholic kind of Sunday school of sorts and hearing the creation story of how man and woman were created. And despite the fifth grade teacher getting some of the story wrong, she actually, uh, the teacher does get the nature of sin correct. And Doyle describes Adam and Eve's first sin this way. She says, Adam and Eve's first sin is, quote, doing what we want to do instead of what we should do. So think about that. She understands what sin is. That's correct. Sin is you do you, eat the fruit, rather than do what God commands. And this, for Doyle, is the cage of Christian morality that had tamed her into a good girl. And it's interesting that they're both going to say they were essentially brainwashed by either white supremacy, heteronormativity, or uh, whatever uh, Christendom is, um, and they're going to throw that off, and that's what becoming woke is for them. That's liberation. And it's, it's crazy, they both are very explicit in saying they are being liberated from a Christian moral construct. So that's Doyle, what about Kendi? How to be an anti-racist. race Now, Kendi's book is actually a pretty good read if you want an example of what postmodernism does to your brain, so you read it and you're like, this is your brain on postmodernism. Um, And if you you don't know what postmodernism is, uh, I think Keith and I will talk more about that later, but uh, it makes you self-contradictory, it makes you stuck in this endless loop where you vacillate between the one and the many, you're not sure which one is ultimate, the objective and the subjective, the rational and the irrational, so postmodernism is inherently contradictory. But all throughout his book, uh, he really clearly defines his terms. He actually starts most of his chapters with just a definition. And I appreciate that when someone's at least trying to be clear. And so kind of like Jean-Paul Sartre, I think Kennedy's actually a pretty good uh, conversation partner because at least he's trying to uh, communi- communicate really clearly in his writing. And he's a self-professed you know, secular. So that's his, his framework, and he's just embraced it. So, uh, what is Kendi's doctrine of man? What is his anthropology? Well, he starts off by framing his book this way. He says, quote, This book is ultimately about the basic struggle we're all in. The struggle to be fully human and to see that others are fully human. Think about that sentence. Notice, for Kendi, we are in some sense not yet fully human until we see others as fully human. And uh, this kind of reveals his postmodernism that denies, like Sartre, any fixed essential nature for man. For Kendi, man is what he does. Our actions constitute our nature. Our existence precedes and determines our essence. And our essence is what what we actually are, what makes us, us. Uh, So for Kendi, what is this process of becoming fully human? How, How do you get there? But for him, it's becoming what he calls an anti-racist, an anti-racist. And this whole project is to get people to stop using the phrase, not racist. So someone says, what you said is racist. And you say, that's not racist. He wants to eradicate that from our vocabulary, he says. And he wants to force this binary on everyone that you are either racist or anti-racist, there's no neutrality, right? So shout out to to Van Til, to Greg Bonson. Kendi is running this saying, no neutrality, you're racist or you're anti-racist all the way down. So uh, he frames this in religious terms. And so becoming an anti-racist is kind of your come to Jesus moment. It's not just a one-time thing kind of like Christianity's a, a journey, an ongoing process of sanctification, so also becoming an anti-racist is an ongoing process that requires action to bring about what he calls racial equity. He also says that, quote, to truly be anti-racist is to be feminist. To truly be feminist is to be anti-racist. So Kendi, you see it in, in both of these books, they tie race, gender, and sex all together under the same category. So we're not making it up when we say there's some coherence here uh, that critical theory has run through the institutions. The, the people themselves are saying race, gender, sex, you're, if, if you are a racist, you're probably also sexist. And hence the whole concept of this series, racist, sexist, anti-gay. And I didn't even know that before I got into this book, but that, this is what he says. So basic to Kennedy's anthropology, who you are, is this binary? You are either a racist or an anti-racist, racist, based on whether or not your actions lead to racial equity or inequity. And he makes this fundamental to who you are as a human. So think about like defining yourself that way, compared to this like how scripture de- defines you, which we'll talk a little bit more about. It's, it's kind of sad, right? You're you're just either racist or you're anti racist so when say the Apostle Paul says Cretans are always liars evil beasts and lazy gluttons Titus 1 12 the Apostle Paul is being racist in fact by Kendi's standard any any moral judgment positive or negative made about any racial group is to say one race is inferior or superior to another he says is racist so for example saying Asians are good at math or that engineer, uh, Germans are really good at engineering, or that Mexicans make the best food, right? So, so I'm just, let's say I just, I, I think that, maybe I do so. <laughs> As an Asian who's okay at
1: math. Um,
0: so for, for Kendi, those are all racist, even though they're actually complimentary. Because for him, it implies some level of superiority. And he says, no, the races are all ontologically equal. Um, In Kendi's eschatology, his, his vision of the future, it's this egalitarian nightmare where the outcome for every person is exactly the same, and that's what he calls equity. But you think about that, this is of course a standard that no human being living in God's world can actually stick with, right? He actually undermines this in his own project. Kennedy himself cannot restrain himself from making moral judgments. In fact, his whole project of anti-racism assumes that some groups of people are racist, (laughs) which is a moral judgment, which is racist. You see, he's stuck in, so by trying to be anti-racist and say there's even such a thing, he creates, actually he's being racist. So this is what happens when postmodernism infects your brain. You start to write and say and believe these crazy things. You oscillate between the rational and the irrational because you have no divine logos to tether yourself to. He goes on. It gets worse. This is the consistent function of racist ideas and of any kind of bigotry more broadly. He says, to manipulate us into seeing people as the problem instead of the policies that ensnare them. One either believes, here's the binary again, one either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist, or locates the roots of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. Think about that. This is essentially his doctrine of sin. Where are problems rooted? Not in groups of people. That would be racist to think that, he says. It's not in the depraved heart of man, but it's in power and policies. And you can see he's already depersonalizing, dehumanizing, trying to remove responsibility from people for their sin. This is what humanism does. So how do we interact with these ideas? Uh, When someone says, you know, all Christians must say black (coughs) lives matter, how do we respond to that? Well, the question we should be asking when people, you know, want to put this pressure on us is to simply ask why? Why do black lives matter? Why is racial equity worth pursuing? Why be an anti-racist? If you are secular, as Kennedy is, you have no God to tell you, thou shalt not be racist. All you have is humans, trying to convince other humans to not be racist, but since, since everything is subjective, and for them, socially constructed, there's no moral force, beyond societal pressure. When you have no God, uh, no uh, appeal, uh, no no power to appeal to, no final judgment or justice, what do people do? They take things into their own hands. And this is why the woke are always revolutionaries. I'll close with this. Uh, There are many varieties of humanistic anthropology. Uh, For Doyle, you become fully human when you embrace your innate desires. Basically, when you give yourself over to sin. It's like it's crazy. I watched this interview with her about uh, seeing the the lady that she would eventually marry, and you're like, yeah, I know what that. That's called being tempted to sin, and she's like, everyone's telling me not to do it, but inside I'm like, yes, I'm gonna do it. Yeah, we all we all know what that is, right? It's called sin. Right? This this is sin nature, and for her, that's that's self love. That's listening to yourself. So this, this total humanism, but that's for Doyle, and people who are, in this is number one book in America, number two now, I think uh, Trump's niece wrote a book, and so that's, that's,
1: one. <laughs>
0: I'm not going to read it. <laughs> uh, uh, what What is uh, Kendi's version of becoming fully human? Well, you become fully human when you embrace anti-racism and, and, and pursue racial equity. Uh, for Sartre, who denies that you have a human nature altogether, you simply are what you make yourself to be. That's your freedom but what does God say about man why do black lives matter why should we fight for actual biblical justice well because God says Genesis 1 that we are made in his image Adam was created as a walking metaphor for what God is like you are all walking metaphors uh, uh, showing the world what God is like and humanism cuts itself off from that Humanism is so proud and arrogant that it would rather define itself as an evolved ape, as the product of time and chance acting on matter, rather than being defined as image bearers of the triune God. Psalm 8 says that God has crowned man with glory and honor. But we would rather define ourselves by ourselves, rather than be defined by this glorious God who wants to give us glory. So to go back to our text in Ephesians. Woke humanism would rather grope in the dark, in the futility of its own mind, rather than be renewed in the righteousness and holiness of God. Glennon Doyle, Ibram Kendi, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and the woke Christians who follow them are exchanging the glory of God for images, images of themselves, and that's an exchange that if they persist in, will cost them their lives. The next time we'll look at a few case studies together, but for now I'll hand it over to Keith for uh, the second part of this uh, talk.
2: Uh, last week Aaron was going to go like 15 minutes, and I was like, "All right, I'll cut mine down to 10." I ended up going 18, and apparently I spoke really, really fast. So I'm going to try to I'm going to try to slow it down. Um, one thing that stinks with y'all being so young, with him talking about a cage, y'all ever see point blank or point break? Yeah. We got one person. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> Patches, one of the packets raises, I can't live in a cage, man. And he headbutts the air. All right. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm done. All right. So <laughs> here we go. Okay. I was, uh, I ended up changing everything this morning, and I want to start with a quote. I'm going to go back and start with a quote because it ties in with much of what Aaron was saying. So, Bob Dylan, you know who he is. If you don't, go listen to him. Uh, He has a song, The Ballad in Plain D. And I think it's the end. He says, uh, my friends from the prison, they ask them to me, how good, how good does it feel to be free? And I answer them so mysteriously, are birds free from the chains of the skyway? And so much of what's going on in most people's lives, your life, my life, everyone else, is some sense of freedom. And so, I think of a few years ago, a decade uh i was preaching up in boston and um it was one of the first times i was really hit up with the hey hey ho ho homophobia's got to go so i'm preaching at the umass boston and it's and it's going it's like in my head it's almost like the it was like the ideal day because it had everything you had a really good crowd you had a perfect heckler who was asking good questions and then you almost had like the near riot when, uh, when the homophobia had to go. So, so a, guy shows up, a guy shows up, and, it, and it's kind of funny, because in one breath they're saying, uh, don't you see that what you're doing out here is absolutely useless, you're not reaching anybody. And I was like, well, perhaps that's the case. But then he turns around and says, because of me, a million people a year kill themselves. And you're like, what? I'm either no influence, or I have so much power out here that a million people go home and kill themselves. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what it is. And what he wanted was basically that my views Regarding things like homosexuality, uh, are creating people to hate themselves, and then they go home and kill themselves. So it's because of me, and then I don't know if this is true. And i but my retort at the time. Was actually I'm, I'm the one keeping people alive because as long as you think I'm your problem, uh, you haven't escaped it. But the minute you, the minute we all go away and we say you're okay, you still have a problem. Then you need to end it because then the problem supposedly went away, but the problem's still there. So. But I would think like that young man, as he presented this case to me about, you know, all these people killing themselves, I'd imagine people who are killing themselves kind of desire to be free. So, at the end of the day, much of this discussion is the Christian view of freedom versus Adamic or Satanic view of freedom, which is complete autonomy from God. And so, uh, and much of what we're talking about, the racist, sexist, anti-gay or homophobia thing, uh, in the early church, they were persecuted for being cannibals, for being incestuous, and for being atheists. They weren't persecuted because of... Jesus per se. So it's not like we're going to have some persecution happen on us because we believe a Jew died 2,000 years ago and rose on the third day. But his death, burial, and resurrection now being Lord in our allegiance to him over to our broader culture, that's where the push that's going to come, come. It's going to come to a place like you're racist, you're sexist, you're anti-gay. You're a cannibal, you're incestuous, you're an atheist. Therefore, the Roman Empire is going to oppress them. So that's how it's going to play out. It's not going to play out because you're Christians in a... You know, how we often think, oh, we're being persecuted for the gospel. Like no one cares. in a sense no one cares that Jew died two thousand years ago a bunch of jews died two thousand years ago what makes jesus and his death so unique and then it's the present claims upon reality so a brief overview from last week uh since i said so much uh uh, cultural marxism so uh if you remember communism is the doctrine of the conditions of the liberation of the proletariat that was kind of their uh confession of faith and so what cultural marxism is is for the groups like uh, blacks, uh, homosexuals, uh, women, to get their liberation from the oppressive white supremacy and patriarchy that the West currently is, and so they desire liberation. And in some sense, we can look back over Western culture and agree that there's been oppression and agree that we need uh, liberation. Uh, Then we spoke about the long march through the institutions. About basically 100 years ago, the communist revolution wasn't happening, and so they kind of had this alternative idea that what we need to do is take over the institutions. And one of the most evident institutions that they have taken over is marriage. And so was it 2014 or 15 they had Obergefell? O- 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 uh, probably like six years ago. So they, uh 16 was it, 15? So, so, they, changed, uh, so sort of, they changed the definition of marriage, like the Supreme Court, voila. Uh, now, now marriage includes these things. But if you look at some homosexual literature and you look at some feminist literature 50 years ago, there's a woman named Kate Millett who is a prominent feminist. She would say that the patriarchy's chief institution is the family. So 50 years ago, a feminist would of wanted to thrown over the patriarchal system that is marriage. And then there's a uh, kind of like a little manifesto called the Gay Manifesto. Um, and he says this about marriage. Marriage is a prime example of a straight institution fraught with role playing. Traditional marriage is a rotten, oppressive institution. Those of us who have been in heterosexual marriages too often have blamed our gayness on the breakup of the marriage. No, they broke up because marriage is a contract which smothers both people, denies needs, and places impossible demands on both people. And we had the strength, again, to refuse to capitulate to the roles which were demanded of us. Gay people must stop gauging their self-respect by how well they mimic straight marriages. Gay marriages will have the same problems as straight ones, except in burlesque. For the usual legit- legitimacy and, pr- and pressures which keep straight marriages together are absent i.e. kids, uh, what parents think, what neighbors say. And so 50 years ago, here they are saying this institution of marriage basically needs a crumble and be done with it. And then it wasn't crumbling. So what do they do? Well, we'll just kind of move in and kind of take over marriage to include homosexuality and, however, and, you know, whatever other dynamics you're going to end up having. Um, and one of the things kind of interesting this morning, I was reading the Twitter, and uh, the APA, the American Psychological Association, um, kind of in a very similar way to what we're talking about here, they would say the association Uh, calls for true systemic change in U.S. culture, and says the association is working to dismantle institutional racism over the long term, uh, including within American Psychological Association and psychology. And then Theopia Jackson says, every institution, every institution, every single one, don't think there's one that's exempt, every institution in America is born from the blood of white supremacy, ideology, and capitalism, and that's the disease. So, if the American Psychological Association has to say, what do we have to do away with? Basically, every American institution needs to be regutted, reframed, reshaped, because it's been built on the blood of white supremacy, then also, obviously, what needs to be done away with is capitalism. It's impossible to have some water. Yeah. Um, and, so, uh, and, and so, even this, every institution. So one of the things, uh, I hope this doesn't get too abstract, because I think it's pretty straightforward. And if it, Honestly, raise your hand and stop me, because this is going to be central to our understanding of everything that's going on, or at least my understanding. So, I think yours, uh, or hopefully, hopefully influential <laughs> upon yours. You have kind of two facts of reality in the world. So for example, if you look out at a mountain, that's just a fact that's there. But if you look at this building, you say, oh, it's the MZ building, that's an institutional fact. That's a constructed fact. And so the land that we're thinking, the land that we're on, is uh, the land that we're on, like this this earth land is, is a uh, you know kind of a natural fact, or philosophers would call it a brute fact. But the idea of Idaho is an institutional fact, and so an institutional fact is a fact that we create. And so if you have money in your pocket and you hold up a $5 bill, you can say, I have a $5 bill, the only reason it has meaning is because we've collectively agreed that that's a $5 bill. And that's pretty important because when it comes to like racism, sexism, and homophobia or uh, anti-gay, what they want to say are things like race is an institutional fact. And so when white men have dominated the Western culture and they've structured it certain ways, Therefore, it's now a white, then from their patriarchy, heteronorm society. So, so all these facts that the white man has structured have favored white supremacy. So the institutions themselves that they have created are white supremacists, they're patriarchal, and they're heteronormative uh, or anti-gay. And so that's pretty central. So what when the uh, the black the um, uh, the female, the, the feminist, and then the homosexual, what they're seeking to deconstruct are all those institutional relationships. Does that make sense? Because I, I just think it's pretty vital. So when people are like, oh, we got a, you know, there's systemic and institutional racism, and you're just like, what are you even talking about? They're just talking about all, the, even the way you use words. So there was a movie, Malcolm X, years ago, and he was in prison, and when he was in prison, he'd look up the word white, and it's basically like beautiful and has all this stuff in it, and then the, the guy who's teaching was like, now look up the word black, it's like dark and uh, evil and all that sort of stuff. So even the way he wanted that language to be used there, see white's this thing that we use in our culture that indicates beauty, and then you have like black Tuesday, which was a horrible Tuesday. And so they want the, to say, you know, the, the, even the very language we're using has racist connotations. Um, so anyway, that's a Pretty central thing to what's going on here, and I'll race through the Alice in Wonderland illustration. But uh, Alice bumps into Humpty Dumpty, and uh, they're talking about glory and birthdays and all this sort of stuff. And uh, (laughs) and one of the one of the the things that's kind of funny is uh, Humpty Dumpty makes reference to glory, and Alice is like, "What do you mean by glory?" And he he says, um, uh, or she says, "I don't know what you mean by glory." And Humpty Dumpty smiles contemptuously. He says, "Of course you don't until I tell you." I meant there's a nice knockdown, uh, na- nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. So when you get into these rhetorical discussions, it's kind of Humpty Dumpty, who's the master of the words? Who gets control of the frame of the discussion and debate? That's the only real question. And so, uh, probably two years ago, I was preaching at Washington State University. And uh, there were like six black women sitting there. Then there were a couple really progressive, hardcore progressives uh, sitting in the back. And as we we're having our discussion, they wanted to tell me that uh, race is socially constructed. And so it's kind of like an institutional fact. And so, as we we're kind of going through it, kind of, I was like, so I can be, so if it's an institutional fact and we can change it at any point, can I be a black person? And they're like, yes, you can. I was like, okay, fair enough. I'm a black person. And then, <laughs> and, then and then, and then we. Uh, and you guys are you guys are too young. Uh, the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the Brady Bunch. But there's an episode where a guy hits their car in the parking lot, and they go to court, and the guy shows up with an next brace. He's like, oh, I can't turn my head. And then uh, the dad throws a briefcase, and the guy turns his head. <laughs> but anyway, that that's. That was this.
1: Uh, So, so this was
2: my big moment. This is my big Mike Brady moment. Um, So, so we we get going a little bit further. So, the race discussion happened back here. Ten minutes later, we're now on the gender thing. And uh, so, I was like, oh, so gender is also socially constructed. And they're like, yes. I was like, so I can be a female? They're like, yes. I was like, all right, so just let everybody know out here today I am a black female. And it was kind of funny because, like, eight black women were like, hell no, you are (laughs) not. Well gender can mean whatever we want, and then race can mean whatever we want, but then when push comes a shove, you are no, I'm just not a black woman. And everybody knows that. And I know that, they know that, but here we are, who's the master of the language? Who gets to determine the nature of the debate and everything else? And so, anyway, that's one of the things you gotta uh, kind of lean in on and, and press in, is who's determining the use of the language. And then once they give you a little bit, you have to run with it sometimes. And like it's absurd to be standing out there and Yelling, I'm a black woman, but, uh, <laughs> but it gets my point across, and everybody kind of agrees. Like it was kind of funny because the progressives, like, yeah, like they at least sort of the logic. Of it, like, yeah. Uh, so it was whatever. Uh, and so kind of as Aaron pointed out, what we need, kind of, the idea that unbelieving man is stuck between a place of rationalism and irrationalism. So in order to critique Christianity, in order to critique your homophobia, or your sexism, or your racism. They need something like logic to say, this is that. Because if there is no A and non-A, racism is the same as non- or anti-racism. So it becomes a meaningless discussion. So the person who is the postmodernist who thinks all of our identity is socially constructed and there is nothing called logic that governs the world. If you remember last week, hopefully it made sense, I made the comment. There's a philosopher named Richard Worty, and he makes the comment that the enlightenment threw off God, basically, and gave us a quasi-defined faculty called reason, which is basically like reason replaced God. It was like this universal thing called reason that was an impersonal thing that man had. We're just going to be able to govern the universe by it. So man throws off God, gets his reason, but then postmodernism comes along, and they just throw off reason as well. But every postmodernist who wants to offer a critique of our culture, they need that reason. And, and so we can kind of stand with the postmodernists as they critique the Enlightenment people because we agree with them that there is no universal abstract reason, but there is the Logos that's created the heavens and the earth. And so that's going to be a pretty central element of how we work these things out. And so the last thing we're going to get into the QA here in a second, um, but if you have your little uh, handout, Uh, It's pretty amazing, and this is, it it, it really is, and what you you realize is even the times I was telling you the story last week of the guy who's, you're out here preaching Christian supremacy, which is white male heteronormativity, Uh, then our federal government had that peaceful coexistence thing with the, um, uh, you know, religious tolerance will stand for nothing but Christian supremacy, as long as it includes Islamophobia, homophobia, blah, blah, blah. Um, but a couple of things I just want to quickly highlight through here is aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture. And one of the things I would say in general progressives do a really good job with, framing the discussion. Who wants to be a white supremacist, you know what I mean? How many of you in here want to run out the streets like, I'm a white supremacist, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like game over, you know what I mean? So, um, but, so how do, you, how do you frame, or who wants to be a fascist? So what do, what do they call themselves? Antifa, you know what I mean? We're anti-fascists, and so, well, and if you're not with us, then clearly you're a fascist. And so, so they structure everything in a way to make it, like the binary is always, what's interesting is they say you have white privilege, but then they want to pr- frame all discussions where they have the privileged position. So we're the, You know, we're the moral ones, you're the immoral ones. We're against fascism, we're against white supremacy, we're against these things. Um, But in short, so just kind of where it strikes up with the history of Christianity, basically the the family structure, man's the head of the household, the wife's in submission to her husband. Um, The Protestant work ethic is apparently white supremacy, so if you work hard, white supremacy. Um, Christianity is a norm white a Jewish religion white supremacy uh, anything other than do uh, Christian tradition is foreign uh no tolerance uh, for deviation from single God concept and you know man like polytheism if you believe in poly, if you don't believe in polytheism you're a white supremacist um and you know we go on down holidays based on Christian religions opposed to say pagan religions all these things make you a white supremacist. So when they attack you, it's not going to be, oh, you're a Christian. So you know you acknowledge certain holidays, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, that's actually really white supremacist. So it's a changing of the language and everything else to put a burden upon you. And and the, the rub is this. Uh, so even uh, then we'll have the questions. I was at uh, Colorado State Monday, Tuesday. And Monday was a really, really good day. Tuesday was a little ant, eh, because they wanted us to mask. It was really hard to keep the crowd once you're covered up. You just look like a, like a maniac yelling. Yep. Under a mask, um, and so I. Uh, but so my friend Sean kind of nailed the crowd, got him going a little bit by by making reference. Did you guys see the Democrats burning down the cities, and uh, so that was so next thing you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> next thing you know, it was like, people So he tags me in, and I
2: start going back and forth with the young man, and then. And uh, and the the young guy was looked like an Antifa ish type kid and uh, whatever that looks like a um, uh, masked white guy um. so so he we're going back and forth and he wanted the uh, Jacob Blake is that right Jacob Blake is that the um, Jacob Blake story to be uh, an issue of injustice and so I ended up asking him he's like well you're not asking me any questions so i just asking him what is justice and he realized equity or whatever society says it is. I was like, well, if society says it was just to kill him, was that just? And then he was just like, and he's actually kind of quiet. he began to kind of wrestle through the issues a little bit. But where I kind of lost the debate was a woman comes up, a black woman comes up, and just starts yelling, oh, why should I listen to a white man? And there's white supremacy, and bow down and And emotionally, in front of a group, that's potent rhetoric, you know what I mean? And there's really almost nothing I can say in that context that, like, flips the tables. Uh, to a crowd who might be antagonistic toward, towards me. They can flip the tables pretty quickly and kind of win them on your side. But what I was seeking to do was, okay, let's say you do away with my white supremacy. What's going to replace it? And so, so if everything's socially constructed, and, and let's just say the Protestant work ethic, and let's just say the antithesis of the anti-Protestant work ethic is black supremacy. Why should I, as a white person, bow down to black supremacy if we're working in these categories? Does that make sense? Because something's going to be supreme in your culture something's going to be screaming in your mind the things you desire and what we want to maintain real simply is that jesus christ is lord he's king and it's him it's not yeah. because you're white it's not because you're black it's not because you're male it's not because you're female but jesus christ is the king and he's the one that we're putting forward to and our enemies are going to want to frame it into immoral ways you're white supremacist you're this you're anti-gay you're whatever and our is simply no. and within that we love our enemies. And so, so our desire is twofold in this sort of thing. We don't just want to fight a cultural battle. but We have real people, guys who are coming up to me who might be contemplating suicide and does think me of me as the enemy and does think the things I'm saying is assisting him in thinking my life is worthless. This guy thinks I'm immoral. This guy thinks I'm in sin. And somehow I recognize that in some way I'm creating some cognitive distance in him. And that's a person who comes to to love and administer mercy and grace and kindness to. And we have to figure out how to do that. It's not just an abstract debate in most instances. In us, right here, we can kind of lay out the parameters, but when you have a real person across the table from you, it's a different ballgame, we're uh, called the So we'll get into some Q&A. I want eight minutes longer again, and. Keith, uh, uh, you said there was some impression that we do kind of owe apologies for this happened. Can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, well, I don't know if you, per se, owe an apology. I think we should step back and recognize. <laughs> what's that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You probably have a lot to apologize for, <laughs> I am. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so
2: when we look at what well, uh, happens, so when we look at genuine, like as Christians, we should step back and acknowledge genuine evil. Like, uh, so you know, I don't care what your politics are, but if let's just say you're a hardcore Republican, if you can't call it Trump for being evil, like you're just being a poor Christian at that point. And so we want to uh, judge not impartially, but uh, not with partiality, but impartially or judge righteously. So when we look at over history, when even things that like, you know, for, you know, we can step back and think that there have been aspects of how women have been treated in America were just flat wrong. How African Americans have been treated in America have been flat out wrong. Even homosexual community, like we have a moral objection to it, um, but that doesn't mean, you know, beating them up or whatever it is is okay. And so we should oppose those things that are un- in- unjust in the process. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm painting from a, you know, 30,000 feet in the air. but we should not hesitate to acknowledge genuine evil when it violates scripture. Uh, But that doesn't mean we allow the culture to dictate what is evil, you know what I mean? So the idea that we think men and women are fundamentally different, uh, I'm not gonna apologize for that. Uh, The idea that I think men are the head of the household, I'm not gonna apologize for that. Um, And so, and we, and even, this is one of the things that becomes more clear when I'm on campus is, Fatherlessness is a plague, uh, and we, you know, people joke about having, girls having daddy issues on campus, or even the boys like the dad wasn't home. So we all know people need their dad, um, and what we want to do is set forth that right, uh, righteously that patriarchy, one done well and good, is actually a good thing, and our
0: society benefits from it. And when it's done poorly, we all know everybody suffers from it. So, and to tack on to that, so there's uh, just like you're a Christian, and we every Sunday we should confess our sin. So that means. We're acknowledging that we're going to do stupid, sinful things, we think, even on a weekly basis, so we shouldn't be so proud as to, when they, when they do make a charge against us, to just say, no, I, I have nothing to do with that. At the same time, you got to know how it's being weaponized. I'll give you an example right now. Um, a lot of people are going to point to slavery as this thing that the church was complicit with. And there were certainly, absolutely, certain pastors, preachers who were totally all for maintaining slavery. At the same time, there were also a bunch of abolitionists who were also Christians. And so, you got to understand that a lot of these people are historically ignorant and cherry pick from history for their own purposes. you got to remember these people are liars. Right? they don't uh, they're going to manipulate the narrative and even even real true things that have happened for their own whatever they want and right now you're seeing slavery if you're going to say yeah you uh, you as a white person are benefiting from slavery in their minds they are saying okay now we have a blank check if you say yes to that then now they have a blank check to do whatever they want and I just heard there's a a guy, pastor, Eric Mason, he's an Acts 29 pastor, reformed guy, wrote a book called Woke Church, and he's saying, because of Jim Crow, because of slavery, we need free college for all blacks for the next 200 years. Right, this, is an, this is an evangelical black pastor in Philadelphia. Okay, And and I know plenty of people um, in reformed circles who are reading this book. And so there's an example of how you have to know how it's being weaponized against you and to sort sort through that. And earlier in that Bob Dylan song that I referenced,
2: he said, he makes a comment that uh, with strings of guilt they try hard to control us. And so the reality is guilt is powerful in your life. And if someone has uh, power over you by you being guilty, um, they'll manipulate and control you. And the beauty of the gospel is we're set free from our guilt and our shame and all that sort of stuff. We can move forward uh, rather than having being controlled by the strings of guilt, so. Andrew, go ahead you think homosexuality should be a capital crime, capital punishment? That's Andrew, or, uh, yeah,
1: it's
0: your mi- ministry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's a hard, so Westminster Confession, when it looks back at the laws in the Old Testament, so there are many capital crimes, kidnapping, uh, murder, and homosexuality is a capital crime for Israel, So that's in the Mosaic law and the question we have to say is okay Is that an abiding moral principle and uh, so I, I believe that's a just law? I believe it's it's just to execute a homosexual in Old Testament Israel uh, the, And the question we have to ask is in what sense would that? Uh, could we do that in America now? I'll give you uh, I'm going to kind of change the subject, but not really so Right now so I'm for the death penalty just in, in general. However, do you really want the government that doesn't even acknowledge a baby is life in the womb to also be the people determining who is executed? Or what crimes uh, are even worthy of the death penalty? And there's even been a number of people who have been gotten off a death row because of you know, new DNA science, stuff like that. So, so what I want is a righteous government to make righteous laws, I would—I don't want an evil government to be trying to uh, uh, impose righteous laws because I think they're going to do it incorrectly. So, um, does that answer your question, or am I skirting around it too much? It.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would say, for the for the con, for the context we're in, we're not in a godly society. So, so you know, 300 years from now, if all of America's converted. The discussion, I think, is going to look different. I, I think the the issue that we face right now is primarily a church issue. So, in First Corinthians five and six, where Paul talks about the immoral brother amongst you, uh, cast them out, separate from them, and then invite them back in. So, for the time being, given our context and the kind of the American Empire, I think uh, the death penalty right now, our application of it is the excommunication of people from fellowship. Then. Um, we can worry about civil magistrate 200 years from now. Yeah,
0: so, and so I, I would add also to that, so a lot of people look at the death penalty in the Old Testament and say, we need to just impose those across the board, but the death penalty is only a maximum penalty, and the only exception where, you, where you're where you required to execute the person is for murder, and I believe it's in Exodus 22 where it, where it lays this out. So uh, just like uh, adultery is a capital crime, uh, David was pardoned by, de- by god divinely but also mary and joseph right so joseph it says uh, was a just man and he didn't try to go for the death penalty for mary so there's a sense in which i would be totally fine in a christian righteous society to have uh, execution as a leg- as a possible maximum penalty for sodomy that doesn't mean we're unjust to have a lesser sentence for them does that help a little bit yeah, okay. and you need two or three witnesses, so, you know, how often... No... Well, <laughs> I
1: wonder if I might supplement that a little bit in saying that from, from more of my evangelistic standpoint, giving giving certain sins, the death penalty, well, let's run with that homosexuality as a, as a, as a death-worthy sin, but from my evangelistic standpoint, I wonder if it might be argued that since we don't have that, it's somehow better, now hear me out, because that means we can, because people like me and Andrew and Keegan can now go talk to them about Jesus and they can repent. So in a way, perhaps it's better that we live in a time that they're not just killed on the spot because now they have a chance to repent and be saved from, from a much greater punishment.
0: Sure, but you don't want to construct a a positive morality or legislation from providence. No, no, that's not
1: what I'm
0: doing. But I I hear what you're saying. You say, if anything, we do at least, like, they are able to walk around, live, even, quote, Mary. And that, as as Romans would say, it's the kindness of God that hopefully will lead them to repentance. But there may come a day where Sodom and Gomorrah happens to San Francisco, say, if they keep doing what they're doing.
1: But don't get me wrong. I'm hoping for that too. John. <laughs> <laughs> so would uh, people who believe in this white, uh, or fundamental white supremacy, would they not consider whites who converted, uh, you know, Islam or uh, religion or whatever, to not have to be free from this sort of white supremacy?
2: If if I would understand them properly, they would they would still. So realize that what they'd want to say is that we're so embedded into our social dynamics as an American, and I and I think we can even kind of admit this to an extent, and coming to the Bible and reading the Bible, I read the Bible as a middle-class white American born in 1975 and influenced by Ronald Reagan and all that sort of stuff, like that just influences my interaction with everything around me. So they kind of take that on a hyper level and just say, well, I never get at the truth because I'm so embedded in that. So what they would sit say is that you know whatever islam you have is your own basically interpretation and construction of it because you bring yourself to the islamic text and shape it around who you are and you never get at this thing called islam so they would still say you're there um you might be working it out, out a little bit and that's why even like the american psychological association is trying to get rid of it so so in some way they think it can be uprooted and dismantled um but it is kind of difficulty because they have to realize any dismantling they're doing is still in the context of a white supremacy. So how do you know when you stand outside of it? You never, you never do. And that's kind of part of their hypocritical problem. They want to so embed you into white supremacy that you kind of can't really get out of it. And yet, how can they speak clearly from the outside of it if they've been embedded in it as well? So, um, there's really, it's almost like a, it's almost like a crazy conspiracy theory. You know what I mean? It's almost like talking to Alex Jones and you're just like, okay, Alex, you know what I mean? Like, whatever
1: guy, you know what I mean? Uh, regarding the discussion on words in a discussion what are some tactics you've used to sort of either set aside the dictionary or take back the dictionary uh
2: so i think like the sometimes just honestly leaning into it um like the, the illustration i gave where i'm like all right i'm a black female so if they if you want just gender to be this totally fluid thing um it would be that would be one, uh, the, the guy I mentioned last week with the, uh, you know, Christian supremacy, white male heteronormativity. And then, well, you're out here preaching secular supremacy, which is black androgynous homonormativity. Now, what's true? That was a question I had to ask him. And most of them don't want that truth to be. And that's one thing, I, that would be the place, like, you don't need to hop there right away. But the place where you want to read into, even like the gentleman at Colorado State the other day, who wanted to, and I mean, he was passionate about the Jacob Lake thing. And, and I think these people are passionate. I do think they do want strands of justice. And so we should you know, there's a proper way to uh, minister them, but stepping back and asking him, just asking him what justice was, he just kept using that term, then even just asking him what it was, he realized, I don't have a working definition of justice, you know what I mean? Like, I, and, and he was mad, at, it was kind of funny, because he was mad at me for wanting to debate what justice was. He's like, but I care about this, I was like, but I care about justice, I care about this, and so it was trying to get him to see the only way you can really care about this is if there's this thing called justice, which makes most sense when there's a personal being that is just and everything else. So that's kind of a little bit is finding the find the words that they're using and either, in a sense, flip them back on them or try to pull them outside of their if you realize they don't know kind of even how they're using a term like justice, especially a word like that. We kind of have an advantage because by what standard? Uh, when we <laughs> don't use that. Uh, it's like a trigger for me. But uh, but, they, but like that's like, that is like a thing that we have. We, we have a personal being back in the cosmos who's just. They just have their social construction. So it's a, it, it, yeah. So so that's usually it is even just asking them a definition and that they're usually at a loss at that
0: point. Yeah, I think Black Lives Matter is, is the, current, Jesus is Lord for the woke, right? You must confess that black lives matter. And if you don't, or if you say, you know, all lives matter, you you clearly don't get it, right? And that's that's the phrase, you don't get it. And there's a sense in which I'm, right, no one should object to the sentence black lives matter. Uh, we're asking the question, okay, so black lives matter, why? Uh, what What else do you mean? Because if Black Lives Matter means what, say, the BLM organization means. uh, Well, then we're going to say, I don't think you actually do think that Black Lives Matter. And so we need to not be able to just critique and deconstruct something. We as Christians, we have the answers, right? So the reason why social justice is even a thing is because antinomianism has been rampant in our churches. And we don't preach the Old Testament. We don't teach about the law of God. We don't even know what biblical justice is, and then we're surprised when the world doesn't know either. So there's a, there's a certain sense in which we need to critique it, but we also need to show them, hey, there actually is something beautiful, glorious, worth praising God over in His law, and that's what we need to be meditating on day and night. Even I think about when they
2: mentioned uh, in here that I believe like something about equity or equal outcome, but like ask them what. What philosophy do you get this from? Like if you're an evolutionist, does, you know, there's a long 3.8 billion years of war, death, and famine give us equality? No, the, the obvious answer is no, it doesn't. It gives us the survival of the fittest. And so asking them, you know, you know, even if their desire is equality, where do you get this from? And one of the things I usually push on a lot in campus is the distinction between uh, diversity and equality. Like equal things are never diverse, and diverse things are never equal. And so if you want diversity, you can't have equality. And if you want equality, you can't have diversity. So pick your poison, and it's one of the things that we can kind of have, because as Christians, we believe we have great, basically, diversity in the male-female. Whereas, what does our culture want to do? They want to flatten male-female. So they want diversity in all these places, but then we want to flatten male-female. And the Christians, we come along and say, no, we have diversity in male-female, but yet we also have an ontological equality because they're image-bearers of God. So as Christians, we can account for this thing called equality, but it's not the equality of outcome. And it's in the context of justice and that sort of stuff. So that, that's one of the main areas I found that, like, even gathering a crowd on campus is when I start talking about equality and diversity, because people just can't resist it, because they're like, buzzwords, and the
0: next thing you know, they can't account for why they want them. Just, they just want them. They just know they want them. Yeah. So, oh. real, real quick, I'll we'll get to you. The, uh, so in two weeks from now, we are going, I'm going to give you a picture, and we're going to talk a lot about what is equality and what is equity. We're gonna try to. If, do you know the difference between that and how it's being used? Because that's one of those other words that's being weaponized. Uh, we'll, we'll stop with this. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so
1: you mentioned uh, something about the Old Testament. Now I'm just kind of curious. What should? What, what is the ideal church's approach to preaching or even reading the Old Testament? Second Timothy three sixteen says that all
0: Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine and proof correction, and that refers to the Old Testament when Paul wrote that. And so I think we should, I mean ideally a competent pastor, preacher, should be preaching through all the whole counsel of God as Paul would say. And so whether you're just rotating, you preach through an Old Testament book, then a New Testament book, or you're preaching topically through parts of the Bible.
1: I suppose, how should we approach the Old Testament now that we're now that we have the law of Christ, how do we look at the
2: Old Testament? So, I guess maybe the simple answer would be Luke 24, Jesus says, beginning with Moses, he explained all the things pertaining to him. So, if you're reading Torah, which um, would just be wisdom, and so when you're reading Genesis, that's Torah, that's wisdom. Uh, the laws, we have a tendency to think of the laws, but all those things are really about Jesus. So, when you're reading even the Ten Commandments and you're reading everything that's going on there with uh, even even any capital punishments and stuff like that. So for example, when in the Law of Moses, when uh, you're allowed to bring the son who's a glutton and a drunkard to the city gates and stone him, what do they accuse Jesus of? Being a drunk and a glutton. You're not the son of God, you're a disobedient son, you should be killed. And so, Jesus is a fulfillment of all those things. And so, when you're reading the Torah, when you're reading the historical books and everything else, uh,
0: if you're not coming away with Jesus, you're misreading the text, because Jesus says all these things are about me. So. Yeah, and I would say, Go read the Westminster Confession, I think it's chapter 19, on the law of God. And that's probably the single best thing you could read on understanding how in the, the New Covenant, the New Testament, we should be interpreting and understanding the law of God. And of course, there's lots of debates about it. But Westminster, I think, is probably one of the best tools for engaging with that